It is Tuesday, May the 12th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, and geostrategic concerns in a world ever-changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I am Bill Whalen, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. For your first-time viewers, what you're about to see is a conversation in which three Hoover senior fellows, we like to call them the good fellows, offer their unique insights into what lies ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. He is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, which you should definitely bookmark as a must read. John, how are you doing? And more importantly, what are those photos behind you, those paintings, I should say? <laughs> those aren't photos. Those are fine oil paintings. Uh, SallyFamaCochran.com. Pure nepotism here. <laughs> very, very good. We're also graced by the presence of Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Millbank Family Senior Fellow and renowned historian and author. He's also the host of Neil Ferguson's Networld, a three-part PBS series on the intersection of social media, technology, and the spread of cultural movements. And Neil, that is Neil spelled N-I-A-L-L, because it's not like there are any other Neil Fergusons running around these days. Yeah, not to be confused with the more famous epidemiologist based in London, who had a really bad week last week. Not only was he caught cheating on his wife, uh, violating the curfew that he himself had recommended, but even worse, his epidemiological model was proved to be so full of bugs as to be utterly useless. I was quite glad my parents chose the spelling N-I-A-L-L by the end of last week, uh, even though I have been mispronounced Nile for about half my life. Unfortunately, nobody on Twitter mistakes you for him. <laughs> if only. A daily occurrence. Our third and final good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. And prior to returning to Hoover, because he was in a past life a National Security Fellow at the Hoover Institution, General McMaster was the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. He is also the author of the forthcoming book, Rattlegrounds, the, R the Fight to Defend the Free World, coming out this September. HR, is there still a book tour plan for September? Uh, let's think optimistically, right? Optimistically, good. Fingers <laughs> crossed. By the way, you can pre-order that book right now, so don't waste any time. Go grab it before it's sold out. So, gentlemen, this is the seventh time that we've gathered under these circumstances, and I would like to shake things up. In this regard, I begin these broadcasts by usually asking a very long-witted policy-centered question, which I fear might put the three of you have to sleep when I ask it. So we're going to do something different this week. I want to ask you something precise, something open-ended, but something we can talk about easily for 50 minutes, and that is this. Today marks the seventh week of quarantine here in California. I don't suffer from cabin fever, I think, but I actually find myself struggling with sleep for this reason. I go to bed at night and the mind wanders and it starts wandering in a lot of directions. I start thinking about little things in life that I have taken for granted that I don't have right now, getting a haircut, going out to eat with family or friends, the freedom to travel around the country and the globe, and that eats at me. Uh, I think about economic disruption. I'm lucky I still have a job, I suppose, but I worry about those people who don't and maybe won't when this is over. And then I just think about the pain and suffering that's going on, that People are literally hurting. They're hurting financially. They're physically hurting. God forbid if you've lost a loved one in this, and I hope the three of you have escaped damage in this. And it just leads me down one road to one question I'd like the three of you to address. Where are we going? Not where we are today, but a year from now, what do you think we are looking at? Anybody take it away. Well, why don't I go first? 
because I'm not having uh, trouble sleeping, uh, I'm glad to say. And uh, I do think about those things that you mentioned, but I'm also inclined to a certain fatalism. Maybe that comes of being a historian. There are limits to what we, clever though we are as a species, can do in the face uh, of a pathogen like this. And uh, what we've uh, done is to create a most enormous economic crisis that I think was almost certainly, is almost certainly larger than the public health crisis. And so what's happening, and I'll be very interested to hear John's thoughts on this economically, is that we're rerunning the Great Depression, but with the tape speeded up by a factor of roughly 10. And uh, this is as astonishing to behold. Uh, the unemployment rate is going up much faster than it did uh, after 1929. And uh, the, the second thing that I, I think about is, and this is one for HR, uh, we seem to be in the midst of Cold War II, so that there's a geopolitical crisis on top of the economic crisis. And that too appears to be moving at 10 times the normal historical speed. So I fall asleep a little bit like a man stunned by watching a fast forward video for too long. You know, my eyes glaze over, I can't process what's happening because it's just happening so fast. Well, I'll take up there, I'll, I'll um, advertise a blog post I wrote last week on the dumb reopening. <clears throat> In the short one, we're gonna reopen, I think. I don't think we're gonna see the immense wave of uh, the virus coming back that the models uh, predicted wrongly the first time and I think wrongly the second time. We can get into why I think that's true a little later, but I don't think it's gonna go away fast. And, and Neil had a very good uh, uh, op-ed over the weekend as well that we're gonna sputter along. Technology won't save us. Uh, it's just gonna sputter along for uh, quite some time. Uh, possibly months, possibly years. Um, so you asked for or what it looks like a year from now. Uh, economically, um, that means we're still in a pretty depressed economy even a year from now. Why do I say that? I don't think this is the Great Depression. It's new. Uh, I think uh, the Great Depression had a banking crisis. It had a monetary uh, crisis. It had all sorts of problems that we don't have right now. We have a disease floating around. Uh, and as long as that disease is floating around, people aren't going to be getting on planes and they're not going to be going to restaurants uh, and businesses. Everything's going to be run very inefficiently. Uh, if, you have, if you're now allowed to open, uh, but you um, want to open, uh, but you have to wipe everything down every hour and put on face masks and send half your workers home, you're going to be in inefficient production. Uh, if airlines have to leave all the middle seats open, then your tickets are going to cost twice as much. Um, so everything is going to be, uh, the, the American economy grew a lot by, by becoming very efficient. And we're just going to throw out to 10 to 20 years of efficiency. Now that, that doesn't necessarily mean unemployment. Um, we could go back to, to uh, lots of employment for low skill workers. It takes people to wipe stuff down and take temperatures and put on masks and so forth. But that means that everything will be more expensive and people won't be getting paid as much. Um, so I, I think uh, Neil's vision of the virus that we're just kind of sitting with uh, for a long, long time leads to a very, very slow economy for quite some time. And, and that's 
that's kind of depressing. I think a, a slow economy and then an acceleration, I think, of, of trends and competitions, as Neil alluded to it at the, at the outset. I think in many ways this crisis has catalyzed and accelerated certain events and certain trends. I, I think that those, those trends were in place already. We were already in a competition with the Chinese Communist Party, that was a party that was becoming more and leadership, becoming more and more aggressive at promoting their authoritarian, closed, statist economic system in, in direct competition with, with our free and open and, uh, system and, 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 uh, and free market economic system. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, Neil, the argument you made in the, in the Great Degeneration when you really highlighted the 2008 financial crisis, how that had already created a crisis of confidence in who we are in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And and um, and I wonder what your what, what you would do to revise your your argument in that book that we had to our 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 confidence uh, in in our institutions. How do you see us doing that as we come out of this crisis? I think it, it has to be a top priority, right? Because we we are going to have somewhat of a crisis of confidence in, in who we are, in our ability to cope with uh, with this kind of a crisis, this this kind of a health crisis that we've encountered but also our ability to emerge from uh, the economic crisis, which, as, as you described, uh, is maybe even greater and cause maybe even more harm to our society and, and people in our country than the, than the health crisis did at the outset. Well, Bill wanted us to uh, shake it up a bit, and I'm going to do that now because I'm going to have to interrupt my contribution to shoot a woodpecker yeah a woodpecker because right now if you listen you can hear it drilling a hole uh, in the wall of my house this is montana living and i think it's important that we share the experience with our viewers so uh... so here goes <laughs> so we've established that a year from now neil ferguson is going to be in jail for shooting no, well, birds. well well neil is showing off his second amendment uh stuff, which you can't do in Scotland. Uh, let, let me jump in on the substantive question. Because um, <laughs> as you know, I'm the one skeptical of Cold War II. Uh, I was pointing to the inefficiencies that a coronavirus economy will have that, you know, if, if, if every restaurant right. uses only half as many seats, it's going to cost you twice as much to go out to dinner, which means you're not going to go and they're, and right. they're not going to be hiring as many people. It's just, uh, and it's going to cost, it's going to be inefficient. Starting up Cold War II is another inefficiency. Uh, I just bought a lawnmower because a lawn, uh, we, Palo Alto didn't allow gardeners, so I'm mowing my own grass, which I'm very grateful to be doing. It was branded the American Lawnmower Company. You'll be glad to know about that, HR. And the sticker on it said, Made in China, which is why it cost $79. Well, we go to Cold War II, that lawnmower is going to be costing $150 uh, if you can get it. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, going to Cold War II, resourcing stuff is going to make everything twice as expensive, uh, which is, you know, that's, that is slows down the economy, you're going to pay for it. And you said, Confidence. I think you guys are having a lack of confidence. Um, if there's a strategic competition between freedom and state-run economies, if we were free, there should be no competition whatsoever. We'd be burying them. Now, I think we've learned something about the American economy. It's completely buried in red tape right now. It's, it's not a free market economy. And out trying to out-communist the communists and out-industrial uh, out policy the industrial policy is just 
that's what, what are you doing? You're adding more inefficiencies to the economy. You're saying John can't buy a, a lawnmower from China because the strategic competition with China demands that we buy American lawnmowers. Okay, so lawnmowers are gonna be twice and three times as expensive as they are. They are. Uh, that all just keeps this, this slow, slow economy going. Yeah, but you know, well, John, you're report that I, uh, I narrowly missed the woodpecker, but it was a difficult shot. Well, uh, I got the Cold War dead through the eye. Through, through the eye. <laughs> I was listening, John, and and thinking, let's not rehash that argument. No, let's um, let, let's ask ourselves some 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 different questions about about the future, because I think in addition to the economic efficiency or inefficiency problem that you've just alluded to, and, and HR's point that we are seeing the degeneration of our institutions, one symptom of which is all that red tape. That was something that I talked about in the great degeneration. And my goodness me, did big government ever fail uh, with this particular crisis that it said it was ready for and turned out not to be. But I think there are a bunch of other interesting questions that seem to me to be worth pondering. I think the biggest mystery at the moment is really how much people's behavior is going to change and for how long. Uh, it's, it's at the heart really of, uh, of all the things that we've discussed in previous shows. Now, there's a theory that says people will bounce right back just as soon as they're told the lockdown's over. You remember a couple of economists, I think Larry Summers was one of them saying, that the economy was just going to be like one of those vacation towns that goes dead in winter and then springs back to life on Memorial Day. Nobody's making that argument now, but Wall Street's still giving us pictures of V-shaped recoveries. Well, there can only be a V-shaped recovery if consumers uh, bounce back and uh, come out of lockdown ready to spend. I've just been reading a super interesting eyewitness report from Georgia, which, as you know, is the state that's been quickest to end its lockdown. And get this, the restaurants are empty, uh, the busiest streets in Savannah are half deserted, people are not rushing back, uh, even with restaurants adopting the new social distancing and other measures. In fact, these measures are probably serving to remind people that there is a contagious virus around and uh, this is definitely not normal. Uh, nothing close. So I think this is a pretty interesting indicator of what may be a national story, that as the lockdowns are ended and as the rules are relaxed, people won't actually be bouncing back to normal behavior, not least because they've been thoroughly frightened, but also, and this was a point you made brilliantly on your blog, uh, John, uh, when you start looking at what happens in a pandemic, the really striking feature is not what the authorities do, that, that's mostly just to screw up. It's what ordinary people do and the way that they adapt their behavior. And I want to sing the praises of your attempt to uh, upgrade epidemiological modeling by introducing the possibility that behavior might change. And uh, it does seem like it has changed. The difficulty is knowing how long it's going to stay changed. And my hypothesis is uh, that we will actually see quite a sustained change in social behaviors, not a complete one, because we're not that kind of a species. But the analogy I drew in this weekend's column was with the way sexual behavior changed after HIV AIDS. 
which seems like a not bad analogy. And the research is in. Remember, no vaccine was found, although eventually they found some therapies, antiretrovirals that worked. But sexual behavior did change. Condom use certainly went up. It didn't change completely. There was lots of unsafe sex going on when there shouldn't have been. I think it might be a similar story with social behavior. We'll change quite a bit, will not be perfect. Lots of people will violate the social distancing rules, but it does feel as if a lot of behavior is going to be fundamentally altered, at least until there's a vaccine, or should I say, uh, if there's a vaccine. But let me, so uh, let me um, be a little more optimistic than I was in my opening comments on this. Uh, <clears throat> I think we're going to figure out uh, what's sensible and what is not sensible, uh, both individual people and this, this wonderful back and forth that we're all having on how does this disease actually spread. Although I, I should say the worst piece of news in the last week is that Facebook, is, that uh, Twitter is going to start censoring tweets and, uh, right. and make sure it's fact-checked by the experts, which is the experts have been exactly wrong on everything. One great thing we've got going for us is this very rapid national discussion. But, but what we know about this thing now is that it spreads mostly through um, uh, personal contact in when people are talking loud in rooms together. Um, and that a lot of the other stuff is, is, is much less dangerous than you thought. Now that, I, I think our, what we see now, that the, the protocols are just clearly way too much and people are gonna figure that out. Uh, that there's that that uh, the first round of open with social distancing is is too much, and they'll they'll figure out ways to keep business going and assure us on a safety. Uh, and and basic numbers will help that too. If you know that there's only uh, you know three cases in your whole county, then people I think will be a little more willing to do all those tiny little things that are uh, a tiny bit more dangerous and and very costly. So I do think we will. Uh, slowly figure out what needs to be done and what doesn't really need to be done. It, it, it won't be the, you know, wiping everything down every five minutes for the next three years. Uh, although there still will be sort of like you mentioned of, of, of AIDS is a good example. It'll just be trundling along for a long time. Okay, HR, it sounds like John and Neil are describing a society of bulls and bears, if you will. Uh, bulls who are going to go out and seize opportunity and they're going to eat in restaurants and they're going to jump on airplanes and reduce prices and travel and satisfy their wanderlust versus bears who might be afraid of the risk. If you're a government leader, if you're a corporate leader, you're trying to convert more bears into bulls, what do you do? Well, I, I think what we have to do is keep people informed and we have to work really hard uh, to, to get a vaccine, right? I mean, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate goal is to, is to really restore confidence through a medical solution to this, improve therapies, but, but, but ultimately a vaccine. How people will actually react is, is not going to be based on what a government official does, I think. I think Neil's point is, is dead on on this and, and, and John's point. And look at Sweden, right? Sweden didn't take any of these drastic measures, but still took a similar hit to its economy based on people choosing not to be together to minimize their, their vulnerability. I'm concerned because, you know, we were already growing apart from each other psychologically, socially, emotionally, even as we were better connected to each other electronically. And I think social media in, in particular played a role in that. Neil's uh, book, The Tower in the, in the Square, I think uh, does a great job in showing how really the, the, the business models the avarice of those companies and the algorithms they used are designed 
to pull people apart. So I think we ought to ask ourselves the question, and maybe this is something we could talk about. What are the positive steps we can take to bring people back together as we emerge from this trauma? I think it's useful to think of it as a post-traumatic period that we're going into. And we have to think about how we bring ourselves together emotionally and how we get through it together. And you know, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this, but I think there is an opportunity to celebrate really the, the heroic response of many people in our, in our country. And also to recognize that, that for us to, to emerge from this stronger, we're going to have to work together. And, and I think there, there's an opportunity for us to regain some confidence in who we are as a people, to regain confidence in our democratic principles, institutions, and processes, especially especially when you contrast really our ability to, to criticize our government, our ability to, to have frank and open discussions uh, about this trauma and this experience, if you contrast it with what happens in authoritarian regimes like China. And so I, I think that well, as we really maintain one of our key strengths, which is the ability uh, to, to, to criticize ourselves, we also ought to be more confident confident and, and feel fortunate that we're in a country where we can vo voice our views and express express our freedoms and, and individual rights. I know a concern in this forum has been, what is the degree to which big government sticks around right after after some of the inter interventions that are, that are aimed to create a bridge out of this economic uh, crisis? Um, but, I, but I think that what we all might want to share is, you know, how do we and what and what are ways in which we can help bring people back together. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a government official that's going to do that. HR, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, that there's a, an enormous job of public education to be done. And that the better we do it, the more people will be able to adapt their behavior in the ways that John's been talking about rationally so that they can optimize, uh, avoiding a complete economic collapse, avoiding a a massive uh, pandemic, that this is doable. But the problem about our wonderful uh, free and open society is that it's open to all kinds of fake news and conspiracy theories. And one of the most depressing features of the online discourse that I'm seeing right now uh, is just uh, a pandemic of misinformation and disinformation some of this just comes from the, the usual suspects, the conspiracy theorists who'd already staked out really quite a large amount of real estate online. And they're just adding pandemic conspiracy theories to their existing uh, set of, of mad ideas. But there are also new players in town, including, it must be said, the Chinese, who seem to have learned disinformation techniques in Moscow since 2016 and are now really doing their best to maximize confusion about the origins of the virus. So I, I'm worried that we're not winning this fight when it comes to public education, we're actually losing it. And when I hear conspiracy theories about the pandemic uh, or the fact that it's actually all fake, there is no pandemic, I, I wonder if we're heading for an even worse place than we were in, uh, in 2016. Another point that's really interesting is the one that you raised about trust and, and, and social distance. That the really clear lesson of history is that after times of plague, people have a significant reduction of social capital. You really can't trust that guy across the street because you don't know if he's uh, 
uh, infected or not. Uh, people who went through 1918-19, especially in those places where it was most severe, had a measurable lack of social capital, and it lasted for a long time after that. For, for the first time in weeks, I, I saw my near neighbors here in Montana uh, yesterday, uh, we both happened to be out for a walk at around the same time, and we conducted a, a, a friendly conversation uh, 20 feet apart from one another. That The new social norms are going to have to factor in physical distance in a way that's completely unfamiliar and strange. And I know it felt odd to me to be having that conversation shouting across quite a large distance it's that kind of thing that you you feel is going to have a lingering impact on us and it's going to make it hard to come together as a society metaphorically because we won't be able to come together literally we've got to figure out a way of reconciling people to these new patterns of behavior that will seem really weird and if we don't make more of an effort in the public domain, then I'm afraid bad, bad actors are going to win the argument and disinformation and misinformation will prevail over enlightened self-interest, which is what we really want to get people to understand. So, so let me push back a little bit as my usual role on this. Um, right now, the thing we need is information. The thing that I think will help this out, the government is not going to test and trace. That's just not happening. We're not going to have widespread tests. We're not going to have uh, technology to save us. We're not going to have a vaccine. We need people to make the right decisions. Knowing how much virus there is in your community and knowing how this thing spreads right now is the crucial things people need to know to make those decisions on their own. They need that information. But the experts haven't been particularly good. So, you know, when Neil worries about fake news, uh, in February to say that masks help to spread this disease would have been censored as fake news because our own poobahs, you know, Anthony Fauci himself says that fat masks aren't good. Well, turns out that piece of fake news was right. <laughs> uh, in February, talk, Just even to be talking clear, John. about the, 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 you misspoke in a way which could end up being fake news because what oh, no. you meant Help to me. say was that if you'd said in February that masks helped to prevent spread the disease, you would have been ridiculed. And it's an important distinction to draw. You're right. The, the official guidance flipped, did a complete but, user. Yes, thank you for correct, because I, <laughs> I want to be correct on that. Similarly, you know, this thing escaped from a lab in China that was dismissed as fake news conspiracy theory. We don't know yet, but it's much more likely right now that it, that it might be the case. Um, the best antidote to fake news is just wide open news, not not to uh, not not to to, to uh, limiting to what the experts uh, say. I salute HR's desire that we all get along together. Uh, and I wish that this procedure were helping us. But if you look at the rest of the news, Americans' abilities to tear each other to shreds uh, remain. Uh, you know, in the last week, we have seen the Biden Me Too business. Uh, we have seen uh, Flynn um, being uh, the prosecution of Flynn fall completely apart, if you look at it from one side, or Trump used the Justice Department to bail out his buddies, if you look at the other side. Uh, the degree of hyper-partisanship uh, on, on those two shows that uh, the, the, there's, there's no coming together going on now. Yeah, I would just, I would just ask, ask you guys, what, what do you think? I mean, because some of our colleagues have different opinions on this. 
Uh, Mo Fiorino, for example, makes the argument that it's really the elites that are most polarized and, and, uh, and, and, and are, you know, the political elites and the media and that the American people are not as polarized as either the media or the political elites. You know, the, the people I talk to, I mean, I, I tend to believe that, that that's, that's more the case. I mean, I, I'm not saying that we're not, we're not polarized. We, we are, we have to address it. We have to figure out a way to have civil discussions to, you know, to give equal time to what we agree on maybe before we talk about what we disagree about. You know, we, of course you can't do this in you know, 280 characters, which is part of the problem, right? We need to have sustained discussions with people and, and create venues where that can happen. But you know, I, I just wonder what you think about this. Is is you know, can is this is this is this a problem that really does cut across all of American society, or is it magnified in the media and among the political elites? Well, I think I think it's important to to look at the the polling data, and and when you do that, you see that there's polarization even on how dangerous the virus is, with Republicans significantly less concern. Uh, than Democrats. And, and you find that kind of polarization on pretty much every issue, even on, as Larry Diamond, our colleague, pointed out the other day, whether or not there should be postal voting. Uh, that's become a partisan issue, which is kind of bizarre when you come to think of it. So I think there is something more profound going on here, and it's not just the elites and the media. But but there's a really key issue that you you alluded to, HR, and that's the way in which the network platforms on the internet, because of the way that they're designed, because that their ultimate goal is to maintain attention, uh, because there's an ad sales model at the heart of the uh, businesses of Facebook and Google, we end up with these amplification effects. Uh, now, there's been some improvement, but not much really in the way that this, this works. YouTube suggestions is a good example of this, where uh, if you're interested in uh, pandemic content, it tends not to take too long before you're directed towards the crankier uh, but sensational analyses. And I think one can't have, have a naive free speech view of this uh, because free speech isn't uh, something that we guarantee to bots. It's not something that we guarantee to trolls. Uh, that is to say, uh, people uh, run, say, by the Russian government masquerading as ordinary Americans. We, we need to recognize that our public sphere has structurally changed in a way that is really very, very profound. I've just been reading a really interesting analysis of how conspiracy theories about the epidemic uh, are being distributed. And it's a very fascinating story of network structures where pre-existing structures that uh, have circulated earlier conspiracy theories are essentially adopting this one and disseminating it. And, and the technology allows the amplification of these conspiracy theories in ways that I don't think a free society can really quietly, passively accept. Uh, it's, just, it's just too dangerous. If you're on Twitter, uh, for example, and you suddenly see uh, a story trending, and you think, oh gosh, I better have a look at this trending story. You don't know that you're being gamed by all those bots and fake accounts that used, orchestrated uh, by domestic and foreign actors to create the appearance of, of trending. So I, I do think that as a profound believer in free speech, I should be worried about the ways in which our public sphere can now be used to, to, 
to game my freedom and game an open society in ways that I think are ultimately threatening to that society. So I, I want to push back again. As I knew you out. would, John, but you're really wrong on this, to be honest. <laughs> you underestimate, you just underestimate how bad this problem is and how many Americans fully subscribe to conspiracy theories that you would dismiss as nuts. This isn't of course accidental. They, do. they always have, you know, and people aren't as dumb as you think. If a guy comes to your front door and says, I'm going to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, you kind of know. Now, if you see lots of stars on Amazon, you kind of know, oh yeah, that's been stuffed. People do uh, catch up to this sort of thing. I do want to go back to, to what HR said though, uh, which is a very good point. Uh, when you look at the polling, it's not anywhere near as partisan as if you look at the headlines. Uh, Neil uh, backed up, yes, but on some issues, we're seeing more, we're seeing things becoming more partisan. And certainly we've all experienced that the in daily life has become more partisan. If, if you live in California, um, the social aspects, you, you just can't let a cocktail party know that you're even vaguely conservative. Um, society or many parts of society are now extremely judgmental on politics. Many of the institutions of what used to be civic society, which used to be include people from all sorts of persuasions have now become thoroughly uh, politicized. You know, tell any nonprofit board that you might be a Republican, you'll be kicked off uh, very quickly. Um, it also is, even if the people are not that politicized, that partisan, that our politics has turned partisan, which no question Washington is, that is dangerous in and of itself. Uh, because of course the politics is where, where the action of government uh, takes place. And there's no question that that has become uh, cutthroat uh, partisan. And I think there's a reason for it. And it's not so much having to do with Twitter, it's having to do with the extraordinary power of the federal government and the administrative state. Uh, when Democrats tell you this is the most election ever, uh, important election ever, they're not kidding uh, because they view it as, both sides view it as a chance to take over, shove it down the other side's throat and keep it that way for a long time. So I, I view the partisanship that really matters is in fact the partisanship in Washington, D.C. And as an economist, I think it comes from one natural, that the prize is bigger than it ever was. Um, and, and that's you know, as long as the state is going to be that powerful and your chance as an executive to rewrite everything the last one did is going to be that strong, uh, we're going to stay that partisan. Hang on, John. What partisanship in Washington? They all seem to be completely agreed that they should spend as much money as they can possibly imagine uh, offsetting the effects of the lockdowns. I mean, I'm actually... Uh, finding it difficult to keep up with how many trillions Congress has now committed to to spend in various forms of transfer funded entirely by the Fed. If if there's partisanship on those core issues, I'm missing it. There's partisanship on who's going to be in the office that signs the checks that send out to everyone. Now, this is a, a serious question to ask. Um, the Everything we're doing economically is premised on a V-shaped recovery and that these are loans and it'll all be over by fall. Uh, if we're going to be spending $3 trillion a month, uh, just how long till the debt crisis comes? Uh, what is the relationship of citizen to state if this goes on six, eight, nine more months? Uh, why do we have a financial system that seems to regard need the Federal Reserve to bail it out of any asset price ever going down? I don't know how far down you want to go with this, uh, but that's a, that's a separate set of, a set of issues. Well, and emerging from the 2008 financial crisis, there was a grave concern then, right, that that, uh, that we're that we're mortgaging 
really against future generations. Future generations are going to be those who will have to have to pay for you know for the debts that we incurred, and and it, to what degree it, it has this crisis just exacerbated that problem as well? And if we we're talking about coming back together socially, uh, and and to to really strengthen our common identity as Americans. I mean, what's going to happen from an economic perspective that can either make it easier to do that or harder to do that? And I'd, I'd ask as, as well, really, you know, what, what, can, what can be done to ensure that there's the strengthening confidence and equality of opportunity? What are the dangers and what are the, some of the policies that could be put in place? I and mean, one of the concerns that, that I have is what happens in education, right? I mean, if we know that there's tremendous inequality uh, in, in the area of education based on what zip code uh, you're, you're, you're born in, uh, will this crisis exacerbate? I think it already is, right? I mean, if you don't have a computer at home, you're not taking Zoom classes uh, in, in your elementary or secondary school. And, and whereas the you know, elite universities and so forth, are gonna, they're going to reopen, right? And, 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 and students will come there. But what, what happens to other institutions of, of higher learning in, in the wake of, of, this, of this crisis. Well, I like just, just to recircle back to where Neil, before we go on to these new issues, I like Neil's view that we are now, that we're gonna cure uh, our partisanship, we're gonna cure our, our national strife because all hands come together on the printing press and we churn it out together. <laughs> kind of looks that way. And I guess some people at least listening, John will want to hear your thoughts on uh, this explosion of debt that's going to according to the Congressional Budget Office, exceeds the end of World War II ratio to GDP in a very short space of time. They're looking at what the Fed is doing and they're saying, uh, is this ultimately an inflationary policy? It was one of the most vexed questions that, that was debated when quantitative easing was first introduced after the financial crisis. How are you thinking about this issue now? Because I, I see very different views on the inflation risk versus the deflation risk in the economics commentary I'm reading. Uh, so my view is um, there's a big inflation risk. Uh, we paid off the World War II debt and the UK paid off the Napoleonic War debt. Those are the only two times in history that I can think of that this ever worked. Both of them worked by strong supply side productivity led growth. The UK invented the industrial revolution. We had the, the 1950s and 60s. Um, both had sustained primary surpluses and very hard headed fiscal policies. So strong growth, hard headed fiscal policies, uh, uh, very healthy economies and, and good primary surpluses, that's what did it. We're not headed there. We're, we're headed towards a World War II debt going into what looks like a very slow growth era uh, at two parties just jumping over each other to, to spend money. Um, that magical monetary theory ha has won. We're not, the entitlements have not been reformed. Even, even you know, going into this, we're having close to trillion dollar debts. So uh, where does that lead? It. Um, uh, I don't want to get into a monetary lecture. Money and debt really aren't that aren't different anymore. So um, the the real issue is the total amount of debt and when do bond markets give up on us and say uh, and try to dump it. So it, it's it, it's like an earthquake. It's like a debt crisis. Everything looks fine. Interest rates look low until all of a sudden bond markets say, you know, we're not doing that. Uh, then interest rates spike, uh, inflation comes, there's nothing the Fed can do about it, uh, and, and you got a mess on your hands. Where is that? Hard to tell. 
um, 150% debt to GDP, 200% debt to GDP. Really, when do markets lose the faith? I think they have thought long, all along that America will eventually do the right thing after we try everything else. The right thing is to sober up, uh, run a reasonable fiscal policy, let the economy grow, reform the entitlements. It's not hard. They just are waiting for us to do it. Once they get the idea that we're never going to do it, and it's just going to be round of bailout after bailout, then they go looking for somewhere better to put their money and, and the game's up. I don't want to duck HR's question about education. No, I, I want to get back to that too. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's the other big imponderable and it, it can have the longest lasting consequences. I mean, one good piece of news, history suggests that universities are, are remarkably durable to plagues. I, I speak as somebody who was educated at Oxford University and taught at Cambridge and those uh, universities saw a great many plagues uh, in the course of their history and uh, it didn't seem to dent their ability to, to, to do elite education. I think the same will be broadly true of the elite US universities after this crisis. I think the damage, as HR implied in his question, is further down uh, the scale. I think uh, it's very difficult indeed for public schools in uh, deprived areas to do any kind of distance learning. So really, to all intents and purposes, education is over in 2020 for a really significant proportion of American kids. And, and that will have lasting consequences that I think will only add to some of the, the many inequalities that, uh, that already existed. Uh, and, and I'm afraid the pandemic is generally, is generally making worse. So there is a huge concern there. And I'm, I'm not really sure what the solution is, because if you bring the schools back in the fall, uh, history tells us you'll get a spike of infections because schools tend to be vectors for transmission of contagious viruses, even when children don't seem to be susceptible. We know that very, very few children have symptoms if they get uh, this virus, but they get it. Uh, there was a really interesting paper that came out of Berlin a couple of weeks ago showing that the viral loads were lower in kids, but they were still carrying the virus. So the danger is clear as schools start to go back in the course of the year, August, September, it's very likely, if history is any guide, that there'll then be a spike in, in infections and illnesses because the kids will bring the virus home uh, and older people will get it. Let me add uh, education and, and opportunity. That's a, a thing, a vexing problem for America long before the virus and one that will be with us afterwards. Uh, in America, the square blame falls on the teachers' unions, which have destroyed K through 12 education for poor and minority kids. And and what happens instantly when they have charter schools uh, vouchers? The opportunity to avoid that horrible system is is they get much better education. Uh, that interacts with uh, you know that those have been the systems that have been worst able to. Um, to adapt, uh, but you know, an iPad is actually fairly cheap compared to uh, what we spend on each kid, uh, what we throw down a rat hole on each kid, even in, in bad schools. The second level of it is what happens to higher education. And I think there will be a shakeout in higher education. It's been coming anyway, uh, but the lack of money from foreign students, uh, the lack of people wanting to send their kids across state lines to pay out of state tuition, um, it's not gonna really affect Stanford that much but I think it's gonna affect a lot of uh, second level state schools. And then the, the politicized rot at the heart of most of higher education, which is what happens when, when you have a protected monopoly 
Um, most of what kids are taking in, in second rate state schools is completely useless. And I think they're going to figure that, that out. So I think there, 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 there will and should be a, uh, a uh, real uh, uh, coming to terms of, of what's gone wrong in higher education as well. So HR, John raises the question of backlash and perhaps parents backlash against the education system. Um, politics is my bailiwick at the Hoover Institution, so I'm staring at the ceiling at night in addition to the other things. I'm thinking about the November election. Is there a backlash against just one man? Is it against one man in this party? Are we going to see a backlash against political institutions in general? And it's a question, HR, not just for the United States, but I think other nations as well. Those nations that don't have dictatorships or controlled state media, but those democracies that can vote out their leaders. Do you think that the pandemic becomes a window to larger political disruption? Well, you know, I, I hope not. I hope it becomes a, a, a you know, catalyzes reform, right? And I think it will all come down to whether or not people believe that our government can get better, that people believe that we can actually implement policies that address the issues Americans are, are going to be concerned about, which is really economic growth and employment. And, and I think equality of opportunity. And we were mentioning education as a key aspect of that. Uh, but, but I think that it really is going to come down to, to whether or not Americans have faith in their political leadership and in their institutions. Neil, this is what you wrote about in, in The Great Degeneration, right? Is that the, the lack of confidence in these institutions matters a great deal. And, and it, of course, you know, I think we were beginning to maybe regain a little bit of that confidence, at least from an economic perspective. I mean, our, the economy was, was doing uh, pretty well. I mean, unemployment was at historic lows. And, um, and, and there were indications, and John, I, I, you, know, you, you track this much more closely than I do, indications that, that um, inequality of opportunity was, was going down in, in terms of at least income distribution and, and at least the mobility of, of Americans to, you know, to, to move to a higher level of income uh, and improve the quality of life for them and their families. I mean, can we get those trends back on, on track? Do Amer will Americans believe that we that we can do that. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm I'm dis, you know I'm discouraged by the vitriolic nature of the political discourse. I mean, I I find it very rare that conversations actually come to a conclusion in in any venue on 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 political media in particular. Um, and and uh, and what you have is people talking at each other instead of talking about a topic and, and crafting. And, and helping to understand you know, what, what policy solutions are to, to these problems. But um, Neil and, and John, what, what, do you, what is your, what, what is your uh, take on, on the prospects for, I guess, regaining confidence uh, in, in our, our political leadership and uh, in, in the wake of this crisis? Well, you're right, HR, that, that things had improved. Uh, uh, in particular, wages for the unskilled have been growing at, uh, at quite a healthy clip. Let's not forget that the the boom years that followed 2016 were jet propelled by yes monetary and fiscal stimulus that the Fed couldn't even normalize interest rates without the stock market uh, selling off and and the Fed chair blinking and and the trillion dollar deficit was there before the pandemic was even heard of. So one must acknowledge that there was a certain lack of uh, of healthiness about that that boom. Uh, I think that the damage to confidence is going to be very profound. And uh, we'll, we're already beginning to see this 
in some of the survey data. I just saw our, our friend uh, Timothy Garden Ash's latest uh, work, a colleague at Hoover who specializes on, on European uh, affairs, and he sent over some polling data uh, which startled me, although I suppose I shouldn't be startled by polling data these days, showing that young Europeans are remarkably ready to jettison democracy in pursuit of, uh, you guessed it, uh, a carbon neutral or carbon zero economy. Uh, there's a fascinating process of radicalization going on amongst young people that's driving them to the political fringes. And, uh, and, and I think we're going to see some similar things happening in, in the US. Being a millennial hasn't been a whole bundle of laughs. Uh, and I think Generation Z, the, the currently college-aged generation, uh, is going to join them in a state of considerable alienation and disenchantment with the status quo. Don't expect that to produce good political outcomes. Uh, that, that seems like a pretty obvious inference to draw from recent trends. And, and when we asked the question, as we've been asking at Hoover for some time, mm, why are the young so attracted to socialism? Uh, then let's reserve some of the blame for educational institutions that at both the higher and at secondary level have just totally failed to educate two generations about the realities of, of life under, under socialism. Unfortunately, we, we seem to be doing everything in our power to re-legitimize socialism by both words and deeds and uh, presenting it on a plate to a generation that has every reason to think that capitalism's failed. And, and unless we do some really hard work, and it's, I see it really as Hoover's core mission of explaining what a free society does, how revolutions and wars come about, and why it's wrong to see what's happened in the last 15 years as, as failures of capitalism. If we don't get that done, if we don't get that message out and get it to a really large and youthful audience, then we are in for trouble and trouble in a relatively near time frame because you'd be surprised how soon millennials and Generation Z make up a big, big chunk of the electorate much sooner than you probably think. Let me comment on these two. So it's not obvious that current troubles are bad for governments. My impression is that New Zealand, Germany, and even the UK uh, has, certain, has seen people um, raise their opinion of the uh, existing government. Uh, ours were still tearing, tearing at each other about it. Uh, HR used the phrase inequality of opportunity, and, and that, mixes, um, that mixes propaganda from two different parties. <laughs> uh, it, the way things work, and the opportunity and inequality are antithetical words. <laughs> inequality means the government is going to come tax the rich and send money to, to others. Uh, and I do think that the, the, in the U.S., if, if you feel uh, some, some rage, something needs to be done, the, 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 what's being offered from the Democratic side is, is that right now. It's all inequality all the time. When you, when you hear what their complaints are about, uh, you know, read the New York Times. What is their complaint about how this is being handled? Uh, it's really just that we need uh, the government to, to send more people checks and how different different uh, racial, ethnic, and other groups are being treated by, by hospital systems, all inequality, all the time. And I think it's a very uh, tired message. Um, Neil's right. The, uh, there, is this, there is this, or was until the virus came, the eco-authoritarians had, had uh, really sprung up on the left. The notion that 
the planet, they took, the, they took their um, propaganda seriously. If the planet is going to fall apart in 10 years, three months, and 22 days, then we don't have bloody enough time for democracy to do something about it. We have to seize power and shove it down their throats. Uh, this was a, a increasingly powerful movement. I, I do think, though, that... Um, so what our government... Our government has shown itself to be incompetent at doing anything but printing money and sending it out. Uh, and even that's uh, pretty chaotic. Um, so whether the attractions of government running things uh, will stay strong, um, uh, I, I think that that still may be thrown up in the air. The question is, what's the what's the messaging going to be? And and we don't have. I mean, so we at Hoover think <laughs> we have a very beautiful, uh, consistent message to offer: a message of of freedom. Uh, um, individual rights, free people, free market, constitutional government. Uh, maybe 1% of the electorate <laughs> buys that. Uh, and the other big messages you see around are old, they're dated, they're tired, uh, they're, they're trying hard to rev them up to current circumstances. And I think uh, that just means it's, it's kind of up for grabs what's going to come out of this. Will it, it certainly won't be 1930s socialism. Uh, it... it uh, sort of cobbled together populism uh, looks like, uh, you know, that's a force that doesn't last very long. Uh, let us hope it is, it's our message, but, but some other message, the, the message that comes out isn't foreordained yet. Well, John, you know, I, I used equality of opportunity purposefully. I mean, I, I think that's what, that, that's consistent with the Hoover message, right? Is well, let me fight, fight you about that. What we care about opportunity. It's, it's. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I, 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 everyone should have an opportunity. And, and the inequality of opportunity, you say what the Berkeley school system did, which is we take I mean, away the Zoom classes so that no, because since the poorest homeless kid doesn't have a computer, nobody has any education. Well, now we have equality of opportunity. That, that's not what we stand for. Well, that's, that's, not what, that's, not, that's not what I meant, John. What, what I know I'm, that's not what you meant, is, is but be really, careful about your words. In the, in the way of confidence, right? Americans should have confidence that if they work hard, if they apply themselves, if they if they if, if they aspire uh, to 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 work to create a better life for them and their children, that they can do that. That there is a path yeah. of opportunity open to them. That path gets closed too early for too many Americans, mainly in the area of of, of education. Now, it's it also has a lot to do with you know, social factors. It has a lot to do with you know, uh, uh, cultural factors. I mean, but I, I think that we ought to all be dedicated, right, to ensure that that every American has that opportunity, whether whether or not he or she decides to take advantage of it. That's uh, that's a choice that, that they can make. But that ought to be a choice they made. It should it shouldn't be it shouldn't be forced on them. Yes. And and um, opportunity is the response to the inequality warriors because that's really what all of us care about is opportunity for those on the lower end of America's economic and social spectrum to to get out of there. And I think this is an this is an example of hey let's talk first about what we can agree on. Right? I think we can all agree that we should all have an opportunity uh, an opportunity, right? And 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 uh, and I think what are the policies that could allow that to happen? What are the reforms that you know that Rick Hanischek and, and so many of our, our teammates have worked on in education that don't seem to ever get done in large measure based on the power of unions, as, as you mentioned, John? So I mean, I, I I mean, how can we make sure this crisis, this trauma, doesn't go to waste? And how can we 
in place and advocate will advocate for policies from our perspective that that help bring Americans together that restore our that restore our confidence confidence in our free market economic system I mean Neil I'm, I'm reminded of of, of really all, all those in, in academia who were extolling the virtues of the Soviet system up to the very moment when it collapsed right and and so I mean I, I think what, what more can we do uh, in the area of education uh, to to explain sort of this this false promise of of socialism and and and, and equality as John as John John would say forced equality uh, without uh, without the benefit of of uh, of opportunity. Well, one of the talking points at the moment on the Chinese side is that uh, democracy. Uh, is just so inefficient that it can't cope with a crisis like the pandemic. Unlike the heroic shock workers of the People's Republic of China who were able to contain the pandemic in in Hubei province, that's the narrative. And you can hear that from uh, uh, very many spokesmen, both official and unofficial of the Chinese regime and their apologists in Western academia, who are, are very eager to jump on board and echo Beijing's talking points on these issues. And I do think there's a there's a worrying overlap here uh, that in, at the moment at which uh, young disillusioned people in the West start to believe the propaganda coming out of the East will be the moment that there really starts to be a coherence uh, to the anti-democratic ideology. And I, I don't think I'm, I'm quite as, as confident as John that nothing too bad will emerged the way it's in the 1930s. Hang on, we've got a communist regime with an extremely efficient propaganda uh, operation telling people in the West, your governments couldn't cope with this disaster, whereas ours could. I mean, it's only a matter of time, I think, before you get significantly larger numbers of, of people following for this in the West. And one can already see it. I get the hate mail from the pro-Beijing anti-Trumpers. You know, if you hate President Trump hard enough, one morning you wake up and you love Xi Jinping. It's a kind of interesting yeah. process that I see happening. And uh, and it, it it troubles me that we're, we're not making the argument effectively enough that, that China was not only responsible for this disaster, uh, but actually when it tried to bring it under control within its own borders, did it in an extraordinarily brutal way. The China that we should be learning from is the Republic of China, Taiwan, which was able to contain the pandemic without any lockdowns, has sustained minimal fatalities, uh, single digits the last time I looked, and has also shown us how exactly to run a uh, testing and contact tracing regime that doesn't violate individual privacy. Uh, so, you know, we, we're losing that argument and more and more people are buying the Beijing line in a way that I think ultimately is going to, is going to connect with dissatisfactions in our society, especially amongst young people. We're getting the signal, it's time for us to go, gentlemen. I asked you a very open-ended question and sure enough, an hour later, I think we've only just started. We may pick this up again next week if you're game. Uh, John, HR, Neil, always a great conversation. I hope you all are doing well wherever you happen to be right now. And that is a wrap for this week's episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back a week from now with a new topic, maybe new conversation. Until then, take care. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy. On behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, take care. We look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>